Good morning. It's good to be together today and to gather in the house of God, even though it's storming outside. Uh, we have shelter. Uh, many churches, places that I've been, uh, have no roof or very leaky roofs. And so the very fact that you're sitting here dry is a, a blessing. And uh, we're going to continue our exposition in the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 5 today, verses 7 to 10. Um, I did a a quick count. This is our 18th sermon in this book. Um, I anticipate probably roughly somewhere around 50 sermons, um, but I haven't plotted the whole thing out just yet, but that's that's a rough estimate, just so you have some idea where we're going. So that means we're only a third of the way done with this book, and it has been rich. So we're going to continue this theme of Christ as our perfect High priest, something we emphasize often here at this church. How can one come to have right fellowship with God? How can you, as a sinner, come to have the right place of fellowship with God? We know what the scriptures say you shall be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we are to have no transgression of the law of God. James 2 tells us what? If we have offended in one area of the, that code, the, the moral law, that we're guilty of it all. So how can we stand before a holy God? Well, today we're going to see how Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. He's the originator of our salvation And how that comes about is that we are justified by faith alone and in Christ alone. So that Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That divine exchange that takes place is the only way you can stand before a holy God. Now, around the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, the five solas, of course, being rediscovered and reformulated, um, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was rediscovered. The Roman Catholic Church, who had largely been in control for a thousand years or so, the Dark Ages, um, came out very uh, hot, in a hostile way against the Reformers. Um, some of you know, if you know the church history at all, the Council of Trent that went on for some time, and it was in January in 1547 that they came out specifically about 30 years after the Reformation and said this, he who says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. If you say you can be justified by faith alone, by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone, let him be accursed. The Roman Catholic person, if asked on the street in a survey, for example, how, why should, would God allow you to go into heaven? The response would be this, because I have become righteous. You see, they believe in something that's called an infused righteousness, okay? It's not an imputed righteousness, it's an infused righteousness in which the person actually thinks that they become righteous. Now, how contrary that is to what the Bible teaches. 
we are declared righteous in the court of heaven. It's something that the heavenly Father makes a ruling and declares you and you and you righteous by virtue of what? Christ's death. Nothing that we have done. It's not how we've lived our lives. Luther calls this an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness from outside of ourselves that is imputed to our accounts. This concept, brethren, is vitally important to understanding the gospel. Do you see how the the terms are so similar of what I just said as far as what the Roman Catholic Church might believe, but how damning that could be if you're really trusting in your own righteousness? I mean, your eternal destiny is at stake. It's vitally important to understand, to believing the gospel and being truly saved. Jonathan Edwards says that there be ground for you to trust in your own righteousness than all that Christ did to purchase salvation and all that God did to prepare for it is in vain. So today we will see how the Son of God can become the source of our eternal salvation. And it's not by you know, as I mentioned last time, trusting in Jesus as a, as a coach to, to, to press us along or a psychiatrist or a motivator or a therapist. No, it, we will see exactly what's set forth. So let's go ahead and read chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, which really form a unit. We took up uh, verses 1 to 6 last time. <clears throat> Reading from the New American Standard. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. For he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself." And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us insight and understanding into this text today. We confess our our minds are weak. Lord, our, our abilities to understand these deep theological truths are limited. But Lord, we ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit to give us understandings, Lord, that you would make your presence known in this worship service as you already have. Lord, that your word would do good to our souls, 
that we would love and adore the triune God all the more, and that the very thought of an interceding high priest of Jesus would be balm to our souls as we go day by day through this pilgrimage of difficulty and trial. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I already mentioned last time how the office of high priest had become very perverted. Remember we talked about in Exodus 28 and 29 what that high priest would look like, what he would uh, be adorned with and all of that. Of course, Aaron being the first high priest. But by the first century, it became a political office in which somebody would just be appointed to support the Romans. And then by the end of the first century, and I think it was 110, it was basically up to whoever had the most money, the highest bidder got the office. And so again, the theme and then the thing that we see several times through this letter, the author is urging these Christian Jews who were living in Rome, who were being persecuted, not to turn back, not to turn back. And for a Jew, it's important to have a representative to represent you before a holy God, right? And so not only is the writer making much of who Christ is as our final perpetual high priest, but he's also, uh, he, he doesn't make it very, he doesn't spell it out, but it's, it's almost like to go back to, to the old synagogue and to go back to, to a high priest that's corrupt, what good will that do? It's kind of like, you know, farming equipment. You know, nowadays you've got the John Deere large tractors that can accomplish the same amount of work as a hundred men with hand tools, right? And it's like, you know, powerful motors and all of this. And, and it's almost as like the author is saying is to go back is to like throw away or, or blow up the John Deere tractor and pull out the hand tools again. It's just ridiculous to go back to such archaic methods. And so... He sets up Christ as a high priest. It becomes the large midsection of the entire book. The hinge paragraph, the end of 14, remember we talked about uh, really introducing, and then from 5 all the way to 1018, for six chapters, he paints what Christ as a high priest will look like. He encourages us to draw near with confidence that we will find that timely help. And then in chapter uh, 5 and verse 1 to 10, really, he's painting a picture of how Christ was similar to the other high priest. And you'll notice in verse 1, For every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men, and things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Every high priest, generically, including Christ, we'll see, because he had to be fully identified with us, chosen from among men and appointed. This is something that is divine, something that God does. That glorious description of the high priest in Exodus 28, the magnificent priestly garments that were set forth, uh, just pictured the dignity and the spiritual significance in which he bore the 12 tribes here close to his heart because he represented them and interceded for them. And then notice in verse 2, we see that the reason why he had to be pulled from men, among men is what? So he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. He's taken from among men, even Christ and his humanity, so that he can come and deal gently with the misguided, 
with the ignorant. And that's us. It's different than the term in chapter 4 and verse 15 where he sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's similar in meaning, but it's different. And then, of course, these two Psalms that are quoted, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. We just read Psalm 110. Um, You have these declarations by God the Father to the second person of the Holy Trinity. You are my son. You are a priest forever. And so, in a sense, those two Old Testament references further support the four verses that have come before and lead us into our section today. I mentioned this large section from 5 to 10 can be split into two sections. Uh, 5-1 to the end of chapter 7, okay, setting forth the, the requirements, as it were, and the appointment of Christ as high priest. But then what he actually did, it's hinted to all through the book, but that comes in 8 to chapter 10. Now, verses 7 to 10, our text today, and it doesn't come through in the English transition, translations, is one sentence, and it also is modifying uh, from verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself. And then it's literally in the original, who in the days of his flesh. And so uh, you've got that there where it's um, continuing the thought. There's two main verbs in our text that we're going to key on. And that is that he learned. We see that in verse 8. And then in verse 9, he became. Now, there's supporting participle phrases which are important that modify those verbs, and I'll highlight those as we go through. So just a very simple outline. First of all, Jesus learned obedience. That's verses 7 and 8. Secondly, Jesus is the only source of our salvation. That's verse 9. And Jesus is designated as high priest, and we see that in verse 10. So let's look again at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save from death, and he was heard because of his piety. He was connected to the humanity that he represented. You have these terms, these emotional terms like supplications and prayers and loud crying and tears. These are emotionally charged words that show us that the writer is emphasizing the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ really being human. Him, His participation in all the experiences with His people who He would represent, which makes Him fit to be compassionate. To, to deal gently with us. Another requirement, of course, is that idea of human sympathy. And so in the days of his flesh, and I don't think, oh, Jesus had flesh in the sense of sinful flesh, like the way Paul uses it in Romans a lot. It's not speaking of that. It's speaking of his human nature, much like we saw, what is it, two 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. He took on our humanity as the idea of the flesh. This is the realm, the humanity in which Jesus attained the righteousness that we needed. William Lane, one of the good commentators, great commentators on the book of Hebrews, says this, These moving words express how intensely Jesus entered our human condition, which wrung from him his prayers and supplications and his cries 
and his tears. You see, brethren, Jesus knew what was in front of him. He, he, he knew that he would have to drink down the cup of God's divine wrath against sin. He felt the full power of sin. He knew that he would become, as it were, the cursed one of God for that short season as he paid for our sins. And so what do you think of as you read this, that loud crying and tears? Now, we've already read it. It's our New Testament reading. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we see very vividly Christ distressed the weight of all of this upon him, anticipating what would be coming in just mere hours. And so that Luke's version could say, being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, this loud crying in tears, I don't think is limited to Gethsemane. I think it's really his whole time on this earth. There's a sense in which, you know, uh, that's weighing on a sinless, the sinless son of God. But we also have other times when uh, he's weeping over Jerusalem, Luke 19.41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Remember, he says, how often I would have gathered you like chicks, but you would not. Also, that moving passage in John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died, um, Mary and Martha send word to him. He's four days away, takes his time getting there for the greater purposes of God so that he might call Lazarus forth. But as he comes and he approaches and he sees the mourning and the tears of human sympathy and brokenness, we have that shortest verse in the Bible, kids, which is, Jesus wept. Jesus had emotion in his human nature. We must remember that his agony was not the mere prospect of physical death on a cross and having nails driven into the wrist and to the, the ankles. It was more than that. It was the fact that he would drink the Father's wrath against sin. A.W. Pink says this, Christ was a man of sorrows, filled with them, never free from them, and acquainted with griefs as a companion that never departed from him. No doubt there is special reference to the close of those days when his sorrows and trials came to a head, but the days of his flesh refer to the whole time of his humiliation. And I agree with that. I think that's very clear from other passages Certainly came to a head there, certainly came to a head as he's being nailed to the cross and as he's spending those six hours on the cross. This explains how he could undergo the agony of Gethsemane with his full humanity so that we see his authentic human agony and recoiling from the cross. That's his humanity. He's recoiling. No one willingly would want to, to go and do what he had to do. Turn back to Mark with me. Mark chapter 14, please. Let's just look a little more closely at this. <clears throat> so he's taking the disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane, sit here until I have prayed. He takes the inner three, says, come with me, and they go a little further. They're closer 
And then he tells them, verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 33, and he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now think of this. If your best friend, if you're with your best friend and he's just pouring himself out, could you just pray with me? This is, this is the worst time in my life and I need you now. Can you stay here and pray as I go over here and pray? These men were so weak, they couldn't, even for an hour. Verse 35, and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray, if it were possible, that the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to them, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you may not come into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again and prayed and the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And a third time he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed. Now, there's lots of things that were happening with Christ, but his humanity at this point of praying to his Father, asking if it's possible, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, but in his humanity to know that his best friends could not be there praying with him and for him certainly added to the agony that he endured. This inner circle of disciples saw him as he would go a little bit away and fall prostrate and cry out to God these three times, praying repeatedly. And our text in Hebrews, what it does as you turn back there, is it's a commentary on this, I think. The loud crying that, that, that occurred there is a commentary. He offered up prayers and supplications. It's the same word that occurs in verse 1 and verse 3. The high priest offers up gifts and sacrifices. In verse 3, he offers sacrifices for sins, for the people, but also for himself. And here, Jesus offers up prayers and supplications. The high priest would offer up, it's used in the uh, Septuagint, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the priest offering up animal sacrifices. And here it's used of Christ offering himself up, his blood and even his body, as we'll see in chapter 10 and verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so these words, prayers and supplications in the original only occur here prayers more common it's not the normal word for prayers it's 18 times but it's an urgent request to meet a specific need and then his supplications the repeated supplications the reality is throughout his time on earth jesus was accustomed as the incarnate son to maintain fellowship with god and to express his dependence upon his father throughout his life and this was by means of prayer, and supplication. 
There's a parallelism that occurs here, Jesus offering up prayers and supplications, and the priest offering up gifts and sacrifices, I've already alluded to, suggests that Jesus' petitions were for himself, on behalf of himself, as it says in verse 3, as the priest would offer up these sacrifices for himself and for the people. And notice what it says, who does he, he cry to? It's to the one able to save from death, the one that's dunamis, powerful, all-powerfully able to rescue and to save from death. And I think the structure here is not so much that that Jesus is praying that he doesn't have to die, that he wants to see his 34th birthday, okay? It's not that, okay? Right? There's a couple of you that understand that very clearly. But it's, 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 it's actually say, to save out of death. And so you think of the resurrection, you know, not to leave me in that, that, that state of death because he really did die on the cross. But of course, we know the resurrection put the stamp of approval by God the Father on the work that the Son had done. Now, what do you make of this last phrase? And he was heard because of his piety. The ESV says he was heard because of his reverence. The King James, he was heard because, of his, because he feared, um, which could be confusing. The lexical definition is a reverent awe in the presence of God. And so probably a better translation would be that he was heard because of his reverent submission to his father. You see, and the question is now that we have to ask is that Jesus asked for this cup to be taken away from him and the cup was not taken away, right? He still drank down all of God's wrath. And so it wasn't taken away. So in what sense was he heard? Well, again, it boils down to his prayer was not that he would escape the fathers drinking that cup down, but that he would be granted the endurance to be able to accept it. And you see this actually in Psalm 22. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Remember, it begins verses 1 to 21 describes the, let's just turn there briefly, describes the agony of the suffering son. Um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it, it begins with, it's as though these words are, are, are coming even as um, David is penning them. It's as though they're coming out of the Lord Jesus' mouth. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by people. He goes on to say, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Verse 16, the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Think of how many prophecies have come true just even from that. But then down in verse 22, which is quoted in chapter 2, we saw this. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. There's a turning at verse 22 of the victory which he's accomplished. And now look in verse 24. For he was not despised nor abhorred in the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he was heard. 
So you have, even in this very prophetic psalm directed towards his time on the cross, that he was heard. He was heard because of his reverent submission to his Father. Brethren, as a child of God, as you call out to him, do you realize that you are heard? You're heard every time you cry out, every time you come to him. Listen to what Spurgeon says. To think that it should be said of your Lord that he was heard, even as you, a poor supplicant, uh, are heard. Yet the cup did not pass from him, neither was the bitterness thereof in the least abated. When we are compelled to bear our own thorn in the flesh and receive no answer, then my grace is sufficient for you. Let us see our fellowship then with Jesus and Jesus' fellowship with us. See, there's a sense, like it says in Colossians 1, that we we share in the sufferings of Christ as we share in in these burdensome thorns and, and difficulties that come our way. We're sharing, and we know His grace is sufficient. So the cup of wrath and suffering was not removed from Jesus, and therefore, It qualifies him all the more to that human sympathy to us as his children. Qualifies him all the more. And we know that Jesus was tested in every way. And yet he did not seek supernatural deliverance from what was coming. You know, in the garden, Father, let's just make it look like I'm taking all your wrath. But can't you just kind of put take take a little bit of the pressure off? No, none of that whatsoever. He endured it all. And then the writer moves right into verse 8 here. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. Now there's a mystery here, right? How does he learn obedience? He's the God-man, right? He knows all things. He, he, I mean, he knows all things from before the foundation of the world. Well, well, that's where we have to remember the dual nature of Christ. In his deity, he's absolutely omniscient. But in his humanity, by which, as Philippians 2 says, that he willingly sets those things aside, he learns. Just like we are not born adults with college degrees, you know, <laughs> come out and, you know, but no, we, we learn. We, we learn to eat food by ourselves. We learn to clothe ourselves. We learn to wash ourselves as a toddler all the way up. So Jesus learns obedience. It's a bold statement, but it supports the humanity of Jesus. And that's the point of the writer. Spurgeon says, as swimming is only learned in water, so obedience is learned by actually doing and suffering the divine will. Luke tells us early in chapter 2, speaking of Christ as a child, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He always did his Father's will, John 8, 29, but he grew in his experiences, in his wisdom and stature, so that he would have a greater ability to fully sympathize with with us. Remember, we looked back in chapter 2 and verse 10 to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, similar themes, which we'll come back to. So he learns obedience. There's an 
emphasis here, or at least a, a side emphasis, of his sinlessness, his righteousness. Prophetically in Isaiah 11 and verse 1, then a shoot shall spring from the stem of Jesse. We know that passage, right? It's talking about Christ and the Davidic line. But then in verse 5 of Isaiah 11, and righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. Pilate himself says, what, what, what has this man done? I do not find any guilt in him. Even a pagan ruler declares the sinlessness of Christ. The centurion, right after, he gives up his spirit at the end of the time on the cross. What does the centurion say? The one that's in charge of at least a hundred soldiers. Surely this man was the son of God. You see, people recognize his sinlessness. Now, there's, in the original Greek, there's a wordplay here with the idea of learned and suffered. There's only one letter difference in the structure in which they, they really just kind of connecting it together. He learns obedience through the suffering. And so that's the emphasis there. Now, it's important to clarify, as Leon Morris emphasizes, it does not mean that Jesus passed from disobedience into obedience. It doesn't mean that at all. Nor does it mean that he developed something from imperfection to become perfect, as we'll see in the next verse, having been made perfect. It's not that he was, he, that he was imperfect in some way or lacking in some way and then grew to become perfect. No. The idea is that he became complete in his human experience. Jesus faced a myriad of situations and temptations throughout those 33 years of his life. His faithfulness was challenged every single time as he was tempted. And, and yet, he, you see the unwavering obedience to do the Father's will. Aren't you glad we have a priest like this? Aren't you glad that we can go to him? That we can come with confidence to him? Because he understands like no one else. For us, knowing that God brought Jesus out of the the suffering to glory assures us that he will also bring us as sons and daughters out of this life into his glory as we persevere in the faith. John Calvin said he made us just in the sight of God and remedied the disobedience of Adam by the contrary obedience of the second Adam. In other words, we're fallen in Adam, we're fallen in sin, we're doomed for hell apart from the obedience of the second Adam, which turns that on its head. Kent Hughes says, Christ is our triumphant and eternal Savior. His superior selection as both eternal king and priest, coupled with his superior solidarity with us, makes him far superior in sympathy to the high priest of old. Well, this high priest in the old covenant, even the, the faithful ones that served God with all of their heart, was so limited in their humanity because they did not have the deity that Christ has. And so what on, on what basis will you stand before God? How will you enter into heaven? It's certainly not your own righteousness. It's like... Augustus Top Lady in that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. 
Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So that's the first point. Christ's humanity seen in his loud cries and tears and how he learns obedience. But secondly, what he tells us here in verse 9 is that he has become the source of our eternal salvation. Having been made perfect, he became, main verb, to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. First of all, this is the result of the son learning obedience. It's the result. He learns obedience through the suffering. The result is now he is the source, the only way of eternal salvation. He is the only perfect high priest. Notice the participle at the beginning, having been made perfect. It's a passive participle. It's something that that God has done supernaturally. And this word perfect, we've already seen it back in chapter 2 and verse 10. I've already referenced it. In bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. The writer of the Hebrew loves this word. About 80% of the occurrences occur in this book. Three times it refers to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, right here. And then in chapter 7 and verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. It's used of the law in chapter 7 and verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It speaks of Christians in chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year make perfect those who draw near the law is powerless to make perfect those who draw near through the law in verse 14 as well for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified so it's used of jesus here having been made perfect. That was absolutely necessary for him to become the source of our salvation. He had to be fully identified with us. He had to be fully sinless. And he became the source of our salvation as the perfected one. The word source could mean the cause. It could mean the reason. Um, All of those are valid. It occurs only five times in the New Testament. You might just think of right here, solus Christus. It's Christ alone. He is the only way we can be saved. That's the only way. The writer is preparing us. He kind of keeps giving little hints of what's coming in chapter 8 to 10, where this is fully developed in a powerful way of going back to that old covenant sanctuary and drawing all the parallels and, and how Christ has fulfilled all of that. In fact, throughout this book, the term salvation is such a complex uh, concept, and I didn't go and record all of them, but but there's just a, a few things. It's his obedience secures our righteousness. His atoning sacrifice washes away our sins. We saw it in chapter two. We, it's spoken of as an eternal inheritance for us. We are identified with him as our elder brother. Uh, we learned back in chapter two that he is the propitiation for our sins. He took. 
absorbed all of God's wrath. We become partakers of Christ. And so, having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. This concept you see in Isaiah 45 and verse 17, speaking of Israel, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Let's turn to chapter 9 of Hebrews for a moment. Chapter 9. Verse 12, just keying on the word eternal. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. A couple verses down, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And then in 1320, familiar text we use for our benediction often, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So the writer is emphasizing something of the idea of this eternal salvation. The idea that there's no expiration date. There's no limit to it. It's not one million years. If you're really good, maybe five million years. You know, It's not that. It's the idea that it goes on forever. It doesn't depend upon you. If, if God was to give you salvation and bless you and say, now, if you can just live the rest of your life without fouling it up, you can have this for all eternity. We would all mess it up. But it, it's, it's more than just the duration and the length. I, I think it's the idea that it's not man-made. It's something that is divine, something that comes from God. This eternal salvation is a salvation that's poured out from the benevolence of a triune God to unworthy sinners. So it's more, it is duration, but it's more than duration. It's the idea is that this is secured from heaven forever. It is absolutely durable and you can take it to the bank. Now, there's a qualifier in this verse. Maybe you noticed it. Just read verse 9 to yourself. Do you see it there? Having been made perfect, he became only to, there's a qualifier, only to those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. Oh no, what does that mean? It's those who obey him. In what sense are we saved by our obedience? And we need to wrestle with this. Well, first of all, we know that the only ground or merit for our justification is the work of Christ. So we are saved to the obedience of faith, of actively trusting what Christ has done and believing that when he said, it is finished, that it's really finished. (coughs) Excuse me. And so we hear the gospel and we respond to the gospel, which secures our justification. St. Clair Ferguson puts it like this. In justification, we are not only told that Christ has paid the debt of our sins, but we receive the righteousness of Christ. 
Now, the writer has already exhorted them about the perils of unbelief and warning against disobedience. Do you remember back in chapter 3? Turn back to chapter 3 and verse 18. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Verse 18, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So then, verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4 and verse 6 and 11. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one would fall through following the same example of disobedience. And so he emphasizes here in verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. How do you obey him? Well, Jesus himself said this in John 6 and verse 28, Therefore they said to him, what your, rather the, the, the following disciples, many farewell or followers, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answers and says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus puts it both ways in John 3 and 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So today, for us, we must persevere in our obedience and our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ. We've seen Jesus learns obedience, that he's the source of salvation, and lastly today, he is designated as a high priest, and that's there in verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He completes the section there. In other words, he's emphasizing again, coming back to Melchizedek, emphasizing the very fact that this is a much greater priesthood than that of Aaron. And and that uh, this priesthood is an everlasting priesthood. Chapter 7 and verse 23, it says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So our text reaffirms God's appointment of Christ as high priest. This is a last participle modifying having become, or he became rather, he's made perfect and he's designated And here he's designated as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's similar to what was mentioned before up in chapter 1, that he's taken from among men. Um, In chapter 4, or or verse 4 of chapter 5, he's called by God. Here he's designated, he's set apart for this work. The priest was called of God and This ideal is true of Aaron too, but as Psalm 110 makes very clear, he's the final priest. He's the the last one. He holds his office permanently. And brethren, you need a priest. You need a representative to stand before a holy God. Not like those in the old covenant 
that would die, you know, year after year, others being appointed, but one can, who can actually do something for you than to offer a temporary animal sacrifice. You need one that can do something for you permanently by making you right with God. And again, the emphasis on this order of Melchizedek, all of chapter 7 will actually fully develop that. But you remember, he was the, 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 the priest king back in Genesis 14 that Abraham came and offered or gave gifts to. And then, of course, Psalm 110 mentions it. And then the writer of the Hebrews develops this very beautifully. Well, let's draw a couple points of application. And, and by the way, just to mention, uh, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 will be our next warning section, uh, a section exhorting us. And then he'll come back, chapter 7, verse 1, to the uh, Melchizedek line of the priesthood. A couple points of application for us today. We no longer need earthly priests to represent us. We have direct access to Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Let us make use of it. And when you feel plagued with your guilt and your a sense of condemnation, maybe because you feel like you haven't lived this past week in a way that completely honors God, look to his sinlessness. Look to what he has accomplished for us, not to your own. Oh, yes, have dealings with God, confess your sins, have short accounts, but don't allow the enemy to continually whisper in your ear, how can you possibly be a Christian? And da, 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 da. You, you know, you're going to be condemned in the end. No, we look to Christ. For every look we look at ourselves, we take 10 looks to Christ. <clears throat> that glorious description of the the priesthood, Exodus 28 and 29, <coughs> excuse me, uh, where Aaron bears the tribes, right? And, and you think of now our great high priest and his compassion bears our names upon his shoulders. And he has infinite compassion for us. And we are always on his heart as he intercedes for us. What a savior, what a priest. I heard of a man in World War II that was a deserter because he was terrified and young and the battles were intense and he deserted and he came back and was um, sentenced to death by firing squad. This is at a time when many soldiers were deserting and coming back. Firing squad comes, there's 12 men that aim and shoot and they all purposely go up to the right and above him, to the left, all around him, so that he's not shot. And you know why? Because those men that were called upon to fire for this deserter knows firsthand the temptation of even having deserted and survived or being extremely tempted to that. He was subsequently survived and pardoned. And so too for Jesus. We've learned today how he learned obedience through suffering, through these loud crying and tears, that, 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 that through prayers and supplications, that, that he journeyed through the sufferings of humanity so that he can fully be tender and compassionate with us. Secondly, we're also to engage in war against sin, as he did. He never succumbed to it. Be ready to follow in Jesus' steps and the hardship that comes our way. 
When the thorn is in the flesh and you've begged God 300 times to remove it and he doesn't remove it, we are being identified with Christ and we know that his grace is sufficient for us. All too often in the Christian life, we want the blessings of the Garden of Eden, the cool of the day, all of the, the food and produce and fellowship with God. But we don't really want the Garden of Trial and the Garden of Gethsemane, the difficulties. And not that we're facing the cross, but you know what I mean. It's the, the difficulties, the trials of this life. We naturally want that peace and, and prosperity. We need to remember that the Christian life entails both, and we shouldn't expect it to be a cakewalk. The Roman Catholic earthly priests can do nothing to help you. I was just reminded of this. How many are deceived? You know, we're talking what, one sixth, one fifth, one fourth of the world, whatever the number is. Over a billion people believe they can go into some curtain and confess their sins, and that somehow God will forgive them. There's no authority, there's no ability to cleanse. And then furthermore, the whole seven sacraments, what's the last one? The last rites, right? Oh, he's on his deathbed. Let's call the priest. Here comes the priest. He comes in with his, with his little oils and, and his um, uh, incantations of what he's going to say to help prepare this soul to meet God. Is there any power in that earthly priest to be able to do such a thing? Absolutely not. No human can prepare another human to stand before God by mere superstition and the repetition of words. Doesn't matter if he's got the collar on right and all of that. No, we have direct access to God. We have a mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you... Consider yourself today, maybe there's some of you that are thinking, you know, I've got it together. Things are going really good. I'm successful in this, successful in that. God must be really pleased with me. I mean, look at the ministry that I do in the church and all of this. And no, God is not pleased with you because of your performance. We need to be reminded that we're filled with defilement. That even as redeemed Christians, and some of us walking for decades with the Lord, resides the seeds of vile wickedness that God hates in our own hearts and in our remaining sin. That there's enough corruption in my heart that if God by His Spirit were to let it fully express itself, that I would be lost forever. Thank God for His Spirit. Thank God that He makes us to be able to stand before Him by the righteousness of Christ. And that we're justified by faith alone. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, how will you respond to this one that learned obedience, that that journeyed through the depths of humanity with prayers and supplications? How will you stand before him who will be a judge? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's not saying, well, I've come from a Christian home. I must be okay It's not that I went to Christian school. It's not that I was baptized at age five and I've kind of mostly lived a very kind of moral life, you know, up there with the Mormons, you might even think. It's not by thinking that you have anything to offer to God. It's by relying on Christ alone. 
Chapter 7, we'll see in verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession forever. Your only way of getting right with God is to come to this high priest. He is able, he's all powerful to save forever. And then once you're saved, you relinquish the worldly allurements and sinful pleasures that enticed you previously. Those are weakened more and more as you run to Christ. Thomas Watson says, God does not justify us because we are worthy, but justifying makes us worthy. We rest in the righteousness of another. It's an alien righteousness. Don't think you have righteousness in yourself and and don't 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 fall into the trap of being self-righteous we are all apart from the righteousness of christ undone defiled and wretched before god but as image bearers who have been redeemed and who have his spirit on the inside we can be something beautiful to affect for good in this world in our families and in the church let's pray oh father how we thank you so much for your word this day How we thank you for how the author uh, to the book of Hebrews continues to add brushstroke after brushstroke to this masterpiece of a painting of setting forth Christ as our great high priest. Lord, may we fall in love afresh again with greater appreciation for what you have done as the triune God and what Christ is doing even, even presently interceding for us today. Oh, Lord, increase our faith, increase our adoration. Lord, may our lives respond in a way that is living a life that's bringing honor and glory to you in all things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.